From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. The 2018 growing season throughout much of the northern United States was pretty tough on cool season grasses. In fact, the winter of 2017-18 was pretty tough on warm season grasses. With us on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Associate Professor in the Plant Sciences, Professor Lee Miller at the University of Missouri-Columbia. Lee got his Bachelor's in Agronomy from North Carolina State University, his Master's in Plant Pathology at the University of Georgia under Lee Burpee, and his Ph.D. in Plant Pathology at North Carolina State University. Lee spent some time in the Chicago area with the District Golf Association and a native Floridian. I'm a regular reader of Lee's newsletter that comes out from the University of Missouri. And we had a lively conversation remembering the season of 2018. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Lee. Listen, it has been the year of all years down there in the central Midwest. And, you know, I'm one of the fortunate ones that somehow stumbled onto your uh, newsletter. And it is a must read for me every time it comes out. And to collect your uh, baseball analogies and all the funny sayings that you have during the year. First of all, uh, big kudos for that newsletter. And second of all, um, how was the PGA? What what was your role in assisting uh, Carlos and the team down there? It was it was an incredible experience, Frank. And thanks for those kind words on the newsletter. Uh, just for you, I put one out this morning, so you got some reading for you to do later. Uh, I was very fortunate to have Carlos accept me into into the grounds crew. He was very smart to keep me off equipment. Um, I haven't mowed a straight line in at least 10 years, including on my own lawn. That was a bit of wisdom on his part. But I did work with a team that, that measured uh, green measurements. So we did stint meter and true firm throughout the, the tournament. So I got to see firsthand what championship level and, and tournament level uh, putting greens are like. Um, I haven't had that experience really since I was interning and, and working as an undergrad, so it was it was quite a blast in the past. But it was incredible to see the level of organization uh, that goes on, the, the level of buildup that goes on for a PGA championship. Um, and for all those majors, I mean, it's it's basically construction of a of a mini city. There's a lot of little details that, that go into that that but I just marvel at the, the amount of uh, coordination that Carlos and his staff was able to impart upon a very large group of, of volunteers. I think we had 100 total on the crew. It was impressive to see, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning and there's no light, but those fireflies and the, the headlamps and the cart lights were moving all in unison, and it was uh, quite an incredible experience. It is. My experience is like yours. What always leaves me every time I leave uh, a five- or seven-day event, however long I get to be uh, assisting like you do, I was trimming the edges of the sprinkler tops with a scissors uh, during the open at Shinnecock this year. So that's a big thing. It's it's really important for us to see the practice of this at a very high level, but really the camaraderie and the teamwork. And I know that Carlos set such a spectacularly welcoming tone uh, for so many people involved that it was quite a story reading it from afar. It must have been really nice to uh, share that experience. And it looks like and sounds like 
Man, hey, you guys are nuts for golf down there, Lee. Uh, you turned out and were hooting and hollering and and even polite about it, unlike us New Yorkers when we go to golf tournaments. So what what can you say about what it's resonating for golf uh, in Missouri and, and in St. Louis there? Uh, it, it definitely stirred the pot. The last tournament that was supposed to be here, the BMW, was unfortunate that it, it went along with the 9-11 events and got canceled. Um, but the PGA Championship before this, which was 26 years ago, you know, I read some of the historical notes in a uh, book by Healy about golf in St. Louis, and he likened it to a circus, uh, <laughs> the amount of rah-rah that, that occurred. And, and I can really say that it, this one definitely followed that format. I mean, you've got 55,000, 60,000 people, a lot of them moving to see Tiger all at oh, once, it's, and the roars, I just... I, I had never heard roars like that on a golf course. Uh, and it, it gave you chicken skin or yeah. the goosebumps maybe to up north. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> it, gave you, it gave you that, and it definitely has given us a, a very high level of excitement. And, you know, I, I hope the PGA Tour comes back because I think it's pretty obvious that the public in St. Louis is, is starving for this kind of event. Mm-hmm. The amount of media coverage and the amount of uh, fanfare and, and just – to see that excitement on young kids' faces takes me back to what got me all started into this, and, and that's the magic of, of golf, seeing it live. And yeah, and to listen to you talk, it's even more telling for me because of the year that you did it in, that it could have so easily have been a story about how bad a year it was growing grass and how tough it was on the golf courses in your area, just producing playing conditions, and that that took a second place to the sort of excitement and sort of spectacular conditioning and, you know, unique way the tournament played out with, you know, how you had to play to win. It was a tough year, and that tournament really put a smile on a lot of people's faces who might not have been smiling otherwise. Well, you know, it's funny. The lead-in, everyone arrives for the tournament who hasn't uh, lived here and experienced the weather, and all the golf course superintendents and everyone who lives in this area really understands what it took to get that course into to tournament-level condition. You know, we were... We're kind of a year late on having the PGA in May. That would have been nice this year, that's for sure. But I wrote a a special piece just for our golf course superintendents about a month ago, and I was real real subtle with the titling. The title was, um, This Summer Unprecedentedly Sucks. So I'm a very good friend, uh, luckily, with our state climatologist. I call him Pat Ganan, the weatherman. Um, And he recently gave me an update on what's occurred in the past 12 months. So it's not only the last three months here uh, in Missouri, but it, but it even reaches back into last fall. Uh, so we had the driest September to January period um, in over 40 years. So we went in very dry. Those that um, blew out irrigation at their normal time in November normally had to recharge some of them three or four times just to keep some kind of moisture content in, into, the, uh, into the greens before they went into winter. This Past spring was not a spring. We had the second coldest April, snow on three consecutive Sundays coming in April, going into May. And then that first week of May, we hit 90s right away um, and ended up being the hottest May on record in Missouri. This has never happened in 124 years of weather observations. The last time it was even close was 1992. 
But that was December and January, and no one was mowing grass then or even caring about it. That's right. And so you have this shift, and this is, I to me, this is the part that gets really fascinating. You have plants that, you know, are not acclimated. Now, again, for those that don't visit your part of the world, it is that sort of moving target of, you know, too cold for year-round warm season grasses and even survival and too warm for thriving cool season grasses around the year. So you have a collection of warm and cool season grasses, but no plant likes that sort of abrupt change in what happened in May where it got really hot. And then I believe uh, very dry. So can you talk a little bit about that first window of the season when the plants really weren't that acclimated, uh, especially the cool season plants, oddly enough, I wonder which took it worse, and can you comment on that, Lee? Yeah, Frank, my attitude here is that we can grow any plant we want to in Missouri. We just can't grow any of them very well. So that April to May was when we're talking about bent grasses and tall fescue and, and all of these grasses. They're adapted. They come from Europe. You know, they want 55 to 75, and we haven't had that in about 12 months. So when we went into our hot May, we actually had the hottest May to June period on record. So that's another 125-year record that we broke. The plants just weren't acclimated. We weren't able to put down those roots, particularly on bentgrass putting greens, that really are are money in the bank to start cashing the checks during the summer when that summer stress period comes. Mm -hmm. So we had considerable root decline right away. We probably started off with short roots, um, and it only got worse. And under any kind of underlying construction uh, condition, or too much organic matter, or anything that, that held water, uh, disease activity on roots. Really, the, the straw had to be very, very light to break the camels back this year. So that, so that early transition period uh, where the plants couldn't adapt really narrowed the, the margin for error, and, 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 and that's before you even got started. So now a typical summer... In your neck of the woods, from my experience, is often going to be humid, uh, warm, uh, and, you know, the one or two incher every once in a while that soaks the place. It was different. If you had to say, was it even a little bit easier because it was dry or was it harder because it was dry? Typically, we associate hot and wet as the worst, but it sounds like hot and dry was what it was for you, huh, Lee? It, it was. So right now we're about five inches below average from April to July, um, and that's quite a bit of precipitation that we normally would get. Now, that being said, unfortunately, humidity didn't go anywhere, Frank. So we were 95, 96, but a lot of times our heat index was still 110. Uh, we were still having dew in the mornings. Uh, we had enough moisture to, to drive disease epidemics. And you know humid air is air that doesn't like to move. Um, and kind of sits like a wet, hot blanket on top of greens. So, unfortunately, although we had a drought, we didn't get the rain from the heavens, and we were able to control our water, what we put on with irrigation. Uh, that didn't mean that the plant was, was working effectively to take that uh, water out of the soil and get it back up in the atmosphere, because we had that wet blanket of high humidity. And, and as you know, particularly in St. Louis, which is the confluence of the Missouri and the Mississippi rivers, you've got nothing but water that surrounds a concrete jungle. I've very rarely been in St. Louis 
and not been sweating from head to toe uh, when it comes for to May through August. So one of the things you mentioned in your writings over the last several months has been maybe uh, the role that wedding agents are playing. And I want to start this conversation around wedding agents because, you know, when, when, when I see guys are more reliant on their irrigation systems and, you know, there's always going to be some imprecision in those systems, you want them to have wedding agents to, to get some uniformity uh, in that profile. Now, presumably you got some roots. Presumably you're not struggling from surface organic matter accumulation. You know, presumably they've been vented and there's channels for air and gas to move through. But all those things uh, being equal, you wrote a little bit about wedding agents uh, as maybe being part of the issue. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Lee? Sure, Frank. Boy, you've got a lot of high expectations and and presumptions. Uh, But (laughs) when it comes to waiting agents, one of the mistakes that I continually saw over and over again is not watering those wedding agents in enough with enough post-application irrigation. And basically what that was giving is this top layer where we were getting a moist blanket on the top of that soil profile. And if you put that in there and you keep that water up high, Basically, that's as far as your roots are going to go. And on top of that, what we're seeing is a huge amount of black layer formation. Um, You replace the pore space that should be air with with water and with saturated conditions, and you get that anaerobic bacteria, and then you get that sulfur gas that is toxic to the roots. So that was kind of that double whammy. Um, And those that kind of went with full rates and, and put the full... Uh, amount of post-application irrigation on were were pretty much fine where it comes to wetting agents. Um, But those that kind of went out and said, well, you know, my irrigation puts, I'm going to put five minutes on or 10 minutes on. I think it's important that we understand how much water that is. An acre inch of water is (laughs) 27,154 gallons Mm -hmm. per acre. So it's important that we go out there and do our irrigation audits and figure out what is a tenth of an inch of water? Is it 10 minutes? Is it five minutes? Is it 20 minutes? Because that's really important when we're putting out these wedding agents. Um, and some of them want, uh, and I think most of them should have, an eighth of an inch up to a quarter of an inch of irrigation on top um, after application. And that's a lot more water yeah. than you think it is. I want to take a break here, Lee, because we could go down a whole wormhole here with measuring water in minutes. But uh, I'm with the associate professor in the Division of Plant Science at the University of Missouri, Lee Miller. We'll be right back. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. (laughs) 
Okay, Lee, so we're uh, back talking about the, the all the grasses you guys can grow not very well down there. And since we've been sort of pounding on the cool season grasses, uh, times may be getting better soon for the cool season grasses with the day lengths and the temperatures. But what's uh, back to the PGA? How about that Meyer zoysia grass, right? I mean, was that variety came over on the first boat? from Asia all those years ago, uh, how were, I mean, that was a little bit of the story because of the nice tight lies and the way they had to play the ball around the, the, uh, putting greens. Can you talk for a little bit about having those zoysia grasses as playing surfaces? Sure, Frank. Yeah. I, I love playing off, uh, zoysia grass. It's a, it's a nice stiff leaf blade. Actually, you have to keep the mowing blades really sharp because of that. But the ball tends to sit up on it and, and produce really nice lies. We are basically wall-to-wall Meyer zoysia grass in Missouri. I've been involved in some of the NTEP trials, and in 2013 we put in the zoysia trial, and they let a pathologist in on this game, so I was able to actually uh, start testing for large patch resistance. Um, but unfortunately that first year uh, Mother Nature took care of the disease for me, and we had the big polar vortex of 2013 and 14. So we actually lost 33 out of 35 of those zoysia grass cultivars, if you can believe it, um, a lot of the experimental lines. And one of the ones that uh, came out of that was Meyer. So there's a reason why we grow Meyer here in Missouri, is that it makes it through old man winter. And, you know, it's funny to hear you talk about that, because I know as a native Floridian and somebody uh, that was trained in North Carolina, you're also aware of the uh, northern push of the ultra-dwarf Bermudas, which uh, took a pretty good beating with that same cold weather you experienced this past year. They experienced in the southeast uh, with pretty widespread kill throughout much of the southeast. Now, ultra-dwarfs simply can't make it where you are, correct? There's still some debate on that fact. Um, I think with enough covering, they might. However, the amount of, you probably are going to have to do the pine straw deal and the cover and the pine straw deal and the cover again. Uh, I was given some talks when I first got here in Missouri in 2010 and 11 and 12, particularly in southern Missouri. Uh, I was given some talks about ultra dwarfs and, and kind of the difficulties and challenges uh, that they would face. And uh, particularly down in Springfield and Branson, they're pretty close to Paducah, Kentucky, which has some ultra dwarfs. But boy, that polar vortex really snuffed out a lot of that talk. You know, the Bermuda grasses we were growing at fairway height for that NTEP trial, we lost 27 out of 35 of those. So it's a very tough environment, and we don't have anything that really blocks that wind that comes out of Kansas. Uh, and that wind that comes down from Canada, and it gets cold here. Uh, you should come out to a Chiefs game with me sometime, and you'll you'll feel how cold it gets uh, out here in this part of the world. <laughs> so the Meyer zoysia, listen, there's been a lot of talk about zoysias. I, I got involved with Gil Hans and Blade Runner Farms in recommending some of their uh, Zeon zoysias. I, I think it's a Matrella. It's Jack Murray's old USDA collection that David Duguay's got down there. And so you ended any discussion about this. Basically, when you did this NTEP trial, one of them was Meyer, where the other two ones were likely to see, like we're starting to see uh, Latitude 36 start to break into Philly 
I guess the polar vortex zeroed everything out, but is there any hope in there? Yes, I believe there is. So, you know, with the NTEP, uh, it's a, it's another experimental line that, that kind of made it through. Um, and it's actually the first time in NTEP history, at least to my knowledge, that they allowed a complete replant. So we replanted the Bermuda <laughs> and the Zoysia grass. Uh, so we've got a couple that made it through a non-polar vortex year, but there is a, a new variety that I'm excited to to kind of get a hold of. I haven't yet. Um, out of Kansas State called Chisholm, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's one that that has some promise here. If if they can grow it out in Manhattan, uh, they we can probably uh, grow it here as well. So that might be a, another choice. But you know, we've had Meyer here so long in Missouri, and it's worked so well um, that that folks are. We obviously don't have the sod availability of the of the newer varieties, and and folks tend to like it. Now the problem is, is we're growing all one cultivar, which scares me as a plant pathologist. <laughs> you know, it does have problems with large patch, um, and also insect problems of billbugs and chinch bugs. So um, thanks for bringing that up about the large patch issue. Now this isn't just for Meyer. Almost all the zoysias get large patch. Yes. Yes, there is some differences in susceptibility. Um, it seems that the Matrellas and the Japonicas might have some differences in susceptibility here and there, but that also might be environmentally driven. Um, so large patch is, is going to be a, a concern. Um, we get it on Bermuda grass, but it grows right out of it. And, of course, if you go to other locations, it, it can be pretty severe on Kikuya grass, too. Um, but here in this region, you know, it, it is the number one disease on Meyer zoysia for sure. And and sort of the upside of Meyer zoysia in, in some ways is that it's not a uh, aggressively growing species, right? I mean, it doesn't grow like crazy. So when it's injured, you pretty much have to stare at it for a while or you wind up resodding. That's the truth to a point. Okay. So we actually did some work. We've worked on um, nitrogen fertilization and its impact on large patch. And I think part of why we've gone out and, and, you know, when we get large patch in the spring, that we it's so slow to grow out of it is because we're not fertilizing it. Um, we've had this adage, and actually it's it's now a, a myth, that when we fertilized uh, soysia grass during the spring, during a, an active infection period for large patch, that we were increasing the amount of disease. In all of our trials and in collaboration with uh, colleagues at Kansas State University, Dr. Megan Keneally, uh, we've run trial after trial after trial that all show that it does not increase large patch severity at all to put nitrogen down during the spring. In fact, it might decrease it, um, and we see that more often than not, that you're actually growing the zoysia grass out of the large patch infection. So we've changed that quite a bit just in the last couple of years that I've been here and finding out that the zoysia grass is coming out of dormancy. It wants to grow, Frank. So why aren't we giving it a little bit of nitrogen in the spring to do so? Presumably, Lee, you're putting that nitrogen fertilizer on zoysia when it's starting to break dormancy. It's not dormant uh, in the spring down there when you're making this nitrogen application, yes? You're correct. We're waiting until we get some mowing, so 50% green up, somewhere around that time frame. We normally look at a soil temperature, uh, a two-inch, five-day average, somewhere around 60 to 65 degrees is normally when we start getting that zoysia to activate. And that's when we've put down the fertilizer and and seen the most success. So what about the fungicide end of this? I mean, obviously, you know, these root pathogens, the first thing I think of is 
Well, like you said for wetting agents, this is a root pathogen, which means you've got to get the fungicide almost on as a drench, as I understand it, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong here. But then again, many times they don't put on enough water. Yeah, so large patch actually is a foliar pathogen. Ah. It's not a root infector, okay. uh, but it will inhabit the thatch. So this is something we look, we're looking at now as well. We're in the third year of a study. Unfortunately, you know, I talked about how much disease we had in April and May and June in cool season grasses. We had a very bad year for large patch on zoysia. Good for superintendents, bad for me, <laughs> in that we, we got really warm really quick and really dry. So most of the zoysia grass really popped out of the large patch infection very quickly. Uh, but we've looked at post-application irrigation, We've applied at both two gallons per thousand water carrier and one gallon per thousand. We applied either heritage or torque um, or mirage. And what we found over and over again is that it doesn't matter how much post-application irrigation you put on. Hmm. So this is something that was a surprise to us. We thought that post-application irrigation would enhance the control efficacy and reduce the amount of disease from these applications, and we were wrong. Actually, what ended up happening is we were looking particularly at early spring applications, and they worked better than late spring applications. So fungicide applications, when the zoysia grass was still dormant and the, the five-day average soil temperature was 50 degrees, actually worked better than applications made at a 60-degree threshold. Uh, this kind of blew our, blew our minds somewhat but it kind of goes to show that that large patch pathogen is probably active a little bit earlier than we think um, and might be impacting zoysia in its late stages of dormancy in the spring. Let's take another break here, Lee, because I want to start another line of thinking, picking up where you left off there, because looks like you're having some major breakthroughs with some understandings of how these things behave, and I want to make sure we give it the time. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm with Associate Professor Lee Miller from the University of Missouri. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. So we wrapped up talking about large patch, and you corrected me, foliar root pathogen. And where I wanted to go was where we'll go now with spring dead spot and bring up the whole idea again of something that I know Jim Kearns has been hounding people about, uh, and I know pathologists probably have been doing it since the dawn of time, not putting on enough water with these uh, drench fungicide applications we have to make. Is spring dead spot one of those diseases where it could be we're not putting on enough water? Absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's important to realize that spring dead spot is caused by a root pathogen. Um, and anything that is caused by a root pathogen, you need to put down post-application irrigation after the fungicide application. Um, you know, one thing that 
I think needs a, a lot more research is this, this adage on the label, well, you either put it in in five gallons of water carrier per thousand, or you apply an eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch of post-application irrigation. I'm here to tell you that there is a heck of a lot more water in that eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch of post-application irrigation than the five gallons. Mm. So I've shifted and, and have started saying for any root pathogen, you need to go ahead and put, put on that eighth of an inch to quarter of an inch of, of irrigation afterwards. The other thing that it's important to realize is that our fungicides, for the most part, all of them except two, phosphatol, aluminum, and the phosphites, only move up in the plant. So that means that when they're taken up in the plant, it's an acropetal movement, and it's moving in the xylem with the water in the plant, and it's only moving up. What that means is that as far down as you move that fungicide is as far down as it's going. Mm-hmm because everything else is moving up and getting harvested off with our next mowing. And I guess I'm trying to bridge the two topics, right? You said one with wetting agents, you know, they need to get it down deeper with more water and almost the same thing here with the spring dead spot. Can wetting agents be helpful? That is a very good question. And I don't, um, we've done a little bit of work with wetting agents. Um, and seen a little bit more efficacy with, with some of them when they're, they're put down in the fall. I think it's an area of research that we need to look into a, a little bit more closely. You know, right now it's, it's not a standard recommendation to add a wetting agent with the fungicide in the fall, but the, the big key is, is making sure to, to water it in and get it down to the, the root zone and to the target area. Are the disease problems growing in the warm season turf? I mean, you know, we, we certainly expect the cool season turf to have its problems, but to me, it just feels like these warm season uh, pathological problems are, are growing. Is it your sense that, that we're spraying more fungicides on warm season turf than we used to, Lee? Well, I think it's that we're expanding the range of the warm season up farther north. So we're, we're bringing it out of its environment of the subtropics, and we're bringing it up and we're, we're pushing it like we, like we always do. I'm not going to get into global climate change and all that jazz, but the fact of the matter is in Missouri, 16 out of the last 20 months have been above average temperatures. So, you know, we are kind of pushing things farther and farther north, and in doing so, uh, we're having longer periods of time during the spring and fall when the warm season grasses are either coming into or going out of dormancy, and it's not their prime time for growth. Um, so I think that's why perhaps we're seeing some more diseases. We're pl- probably paying more attention um, because we are we do have warm season turf grasses now in a bigger range than we ever have before. Um, and I think you know, particularly with ultra dwarfs, I, I kind of wish we had ultra dwarfs in Missouri because I'm so excited to research some of the some of these crazy new diseases <laughs> that that they're finding on them. It's it's right there on the edge of my grasp, and I can't get to it. You know, I think that more intense management of, of warm seasons than we've done in the past, uh, I think, is is leading to an environment that, that's more conducive for these pathogens that we're able to notice. So what do you make of the uh, blue muta thing? What do you think of these hybrid systems? I mean, obviously, that's all been developed in sports turf, but I guess let me just ask you, what is your sense of these warm season, cool season uh, combinations, it would seem to me that your climate would be perfect for it. 
Well, it's kind of my front lawn. So I have common Bermuda in my front lawn that I've tried to get rid of for, for several years. So I've seeded in HTT bluegrass and RTF uh, tall fescue. And you know what? I yin and yang. Huh. So during the summer right now, I'm almost completely Bermuda grass. And when we get into fall, all that can already see the Kentucky bluegrass and the tall fescue starting to peak back through. From that aspect and from sports fields, I like that. I know that some golf courses are, are starting this in fairways. So we're starting to do some research down that line. Um, you know, from, uh, for me, I'm a, I'm a plant pathologist, a turf grass pathologist through and through. Yes. We actually started this a, a couple years ago and are, are just about ready to release the research. But um, we've kind of looked at phrase mowing as a cultural practice for spring dead spot without the bluegrass component to it. Mm. Um, and have found that uh, particularly when we open up the canopy with a phrase mow and put a fungicide down, and then add one more in the fall, which we normally would have two applications anyway, uh, we really curatively uh, cut down on the amount of spring dead spot severity compared to anything else that we've tried in the past. So we've taken that kind of model and said, well, what's going to happen if we went in phrase mode and put Kentucky bluegrass in? Would it infest spring dead spot areas that are, that are affected? Um, and we're finding some pretty good results. We're only about nine, ten months in yet, but we actually seeded HGT bluegrass in July. Um, and when it went, the Bermuda grass went dormant in December, we were seeing pretty good results of how much Kentucky bluegrass was coming in. So I'm excited by the prospect. In other areas, they overseed with perennial ryegrass. We don't really do that here in this region. Um, but why not have something that, that perhaps is a little bit more sustainable? Um, and can we develop management strategies to benefit both of the grasses at the same time? Um, and I, I think that's kind of the challenges and, and some of the things we're thinking about. You know, when, when is the prime, there is no real prime growing period for either one because, you know, during the summer the Bermuda grass is going to go, during the fall and spring the Kentucky bluegrass or the tall fescue is going to go, when do you apply, apply the fertilizer? Um, can we mix with, mess with slow releases and get that uh, overall cover? Uh, what kind of diseases are we going to see? Um, are we going to see summer patch on Kentucky bluegrass? Are we going to see spring dead spot on Bermuda grass? Um, are we going to get some disease management just by throwing a couple species in the mix? Hmm. I think those are things that we need to research and figure out. Lee Miller, thank you so much for taking the time to yak with me. We could yak a couple of days about these things uh, <laughs> moving forward. Uh, what a joy to have you on, Lee. Thanks so much for taking the time. Anytime, Frank. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate All right. it. All right. Frankly speaking here, I'm Frank Rossi. We'll be right back with some final thoughts. Looking behind the scenes in the growing season of 2018 with an expert like Lee Miller really gives us an opportunity to understand some of the science that underlies the problems that we face. The changing climate is really creating challenges for both cool and warm season grasses as the warm season grasses struggled from the winter damage and the cool season grasses struggled with the persistent heat, dry weather, and our infrastructure systems that are not designed to keep up with dramatic and intense weather conditions that create abiotic stress that are then compounded with biotic pressures from pests such as diseases and insects. Having scientists looking into these problems and being on the front lines with the turf grass managers that are regular listeners to Frankly Speaking is exactly what Professor Lee Miller is designed to do and does so exceptionally well. 
We're really grateful he took the time to join us on this episode of Frankly Speaking.